Happy New Year to everyone. Hope you had a, a wonderful, safe holidays. Of course, it was a, a Christmas season, unlike any other. Everyone had to stay in their family bubbles, but I trust that um, your celebrations were warm and just as meaningful. Well, we are going to be starting a, a brand new uh, preaching series, and uh, it's going to be on the life of David. And if you want to turn with me uh, in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 16, uh, we are going to look at some of those verses there. David, of course, is one of the most beloved figures in the Bible. And uh, as king, he is the gold standard by which all kings are measured. In addition to being a great king, David was also an elite warrior and a world-class musician and poet. One of the things that we emphasize at Five Stones Church is worship and the presence of God. And this was a model that came from King David himself. He was a trailblazer. He really understood the, the power and the presence of God. And this is the thing that's distinctive about the church from any other organization or any other faith, and that's the whole idea that the Spirit of God comes to visit and dwell and abide upon His people. We know one of the exciting things that happened for Jesus when He was baptized is that the dove and came down and abided on Him. It did not lift off of Him, it stayed on Him. And that was a picture of a coming promise in which the Spirit would come and dwell in the midst of His people. And that experience and the richness of being able to bask in God's presence is a model that King David came to, uh, gave to us as the church. And just think, 2,000-some years later, we're still greatly, greatly enriched and blessed by just his sensitivity and his passion for music. So he was not only a great king, but also a wonderful poet and musician. And his biography is filled with amazing stories of highs and lows, and there are many compelling lessons that we're going to mine as we go through his life. But before we dive in, let me just uh, commit our series to the Lord here in prayer. And, and Father, we thank you for just the opportunity to learn from your word, to look at David's life in-depthly. Father God, to receive from it, to be inspired by it, to be challenged by it. Holy Spirit, be our preacher, be our teacher, be the revelator, Father God, in our hearts this morning. We commit our time to you in Jesus' name, amen. So for background's sake, <clears throat> I'm just going to put up this graph. Don't be overwhelmed by it. Um, we showed this during our Minor prophet series. But for background's sake, let's remember that King David was the second king of Israel. He's in the, the red box there that's highlighted. And the first king was Saul, who was given to the people by the prophet Samuel in response to their request who wanted a king like all the other nations around them. Now, on the left side of this slide, you see that there was an era of judges, and that's when the people of God were ruled by judges, a singular figure that helped lead the people, and that was God's form of theocracy. A theocracy is where God himself directly leads and guides and speaks to his people. It's not a representative form that we're used to in democracy. It's where God rules directly through spiritual leadership. And prior to the era of the kings, the people were led by judges. But as they moved into the promised land and they began to see all the nations around them, they said, you know what, we want that same kind of rulership. We want kings. And this was a disappointment to God and to the prophet at that time, who was Samuel. But God allowed them uh, to have a king. And so we see Samuel the prophet 
as the one that anointed the first king or instituted the first monarchy uh, system for the people of God. And Samuel was a prophet of great renown because, as the Bible describes it, none of his words fell to the ground. In other words, he had a track record of 100% accuracy. And of course, that's very impressive, and it's the reason why he carried such authority in the land. Samuel is then tasked by God to anoint this new king, and when Saul was set in and installed, he was 40 years old, and his reign would last for 32 years. Now, this is how the Bible describes uh, King Saul as he was introduced to the nation. He was a young man and handsome, and there was not a one more handsome than he among the sons of Israel. So he was dazzling. He was great to look at. And it says that from his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. Now, when the people were presented Saul um, as their new king, it says that the people shouted and cried out, Long live the king. So they were excited to finally get their king. He was pleasing to their eye, and he looked like just the one that could lead them into victory whenever they went out to war. Part of the reason why the people requested a king is because they wanted someone to go out before them and to fight their battles. So early on when Saul was set in, he had some early successes on the battlefield. He defeated the Ammonites and the Philistines. But unfortunately, his reign went sideways quite quickly. And although he looked like a great king, in fact, he was riddled with insecurity and fear and paranoia, and he had poor leadership skills. And his downfall came when he did not fully obey God's commands. In two pivotal moments, Saul disqualified himself from being king. In the first instance, which is given to us in 1 Samuel 13, he overstepped his bounds and entered into the office of the priest to offer a sacrifice before God. Now, God had already blessed him to lead the nation, and yet he wanted more power, and he stepped into this office, which was not his to take, and that was the beginning of his downfall. In a second instance, as he was sent by God to defeat the Amalekites, he listened to the voice of the people over God, because God says, I want you to destroy the Amalekites, take everything of their spoil, and completely destroy them. But instead, he kept back some of the best spoils for himself. So because of his disobedience, God sets in motion to finding his successor, which was David. And God would famously describe David as a man after God's heart and do all his will. And so this is where we pick up the story in 1 Samuel 16. This is the first time that David is introduced to us. So I'm going to read these verses to us here. Uh, beginning in the first verse. The Lord said to Samuel, the prophet of the time, how long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? So Samuel the prophet was very sad that they had just started this whole monarchy system. He turned out to be a poor leader and now they had to transition. So, so Samuel the prophet was still very much grieving over this. And God said to Samuel, fill your horn with oil and I will send you to Jesse, Jesse the Bethlehemite. For I've selected a king for myself among his sons. Samuel said, How can I go? When Saul hears of it, he will kill me. And the Lord said, Take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. So what happens is, is God is plotting to install the new successor, 
without telling the current king, which is Saul. So Samuel is very scared that if he goes and does this public event of finding another king, the current king, as in Saul, would be very upset. So God tells him the procedure and how to go through this. So he goes to see Jesse in Bethlehem. He said, invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do, and you shall anoint for me the one whom I designate to you. So Samuel did what the Lord said and came to Bethlehem. Now, of course, Bethlehem is very famous, right? Because it's the birthplace of Jesus Christ. It's also the birthplace of King David. So obviously, there's a a strong prophetic connection here. The elders of the city came trembling to meet Samuel and said, Do you come in peace? And he said, In peace I come. I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. He also consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. It came about when they entered, Samuel looked at Eliab. So what happens is Samuel says, okay, I'm coming to your family, Jesse. God sent me on a mission. I want to see all your sons. So the first son that was presented to him was Eliab. So this is what we read in verse 6. So Samuel the prophet looked at him and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, for man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Jesse called Abinadab, son number two, and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Next, Jesse made Shammah pass by, son number three. And he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Thus Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the children? And he said, there remains yet the youngest one, and behold, he is tending the sheep. Then Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him here, for we shall not sit down until he comes here. So then we have this final scene playing out. Jesse sent, brought David in. Now he was ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. And the Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose and went to Ramah. Ramah was the hometown of the prophet. So based on this passage here, I'm entitling my message, God wants all of your heart. And there are many kinds of hearts in the Bible. Scripture talks about a wicked heart, a kind heart, a soft heart, tender heart, a hard heart. But for this message, I want to use a temperature scale, which is what the Scripture uses to describe three different kinds of heart. And the first one is a cold heart. Jesus tells us that cold hearts will be the sign of the last days due to the chaotic and anachronistic environment we'll be living in. Matthew 24, 12, Jesus said, Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will become cold. The cultural around us will become anti-God, cynical, defiant, resisting truth and sowing unbelief, doubt, and skepticism. We already see this, and not only is it in culture, not only in people's opinions and the editorials we read, the magazines that we see, the newscast, it's even now legislated into our laws. 
all across this earth, there's this rising tide against Christianity and faith. 2 Timothy chapter 3 says that people would become ungrateful, unholy, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, irreconcilable, arrogant, lovers of pleasure, pleasure rather than lovers of God. And this kind of environment produces a chilling effect on people's hearts, causing them to go cold. A second kind of heart that we see is a lukewarm heart. Jesus said of the Laodicean church in Revelations chapter 3, which is a picture of the end time church, is I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and you're neither cold or hot, I will spit you out of my mouth. In some translations it says I will vomit you out of my mouth. In other words, the state of the church, the state of our hearts becomes just sickening to the stomach, so much so that it has to be expelled. A lukewarm heart is a picture of half-heartedness, half in love with God and half in love with the world. The lukewarm heart is one that gets ensnared by the world. In Matthew 13, 22, where Jesus gives us the parable of the sower, he gives us this picture of four different kinds of soil. And the third kind of soil is described to us as one in which the thorns has come among the seeds. And Jesus says, this is the one who hears the word, and the anxiety of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. People love money. They're chasing after money. They, they get up, and they're panting for it. And as they pursue money, as they pursue wealth, it chokes out the word. In the parable of the great banquet in Luke chapter 15, Jesus gives us again this, this story to describe just the condition of our heart. And the king has invited everyone to come to this great banquet, the best food, the best of everything. And it says, yet they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said, I've purchased a field. I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. And another said, I bought five yoke of oxen, and I'm going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another said, I took a woman as my wife, and for that reason, I cannot come. That's the spirit of the age. We all have an excuse why we can't spend time with God, why we cannot be drawn to God. Our minds and our hearts are so split. We have so many things that we have to take care of. In James chapter 4, verse 4 the scripture is very clear. It says, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity with God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Compromise, indifference, riding the fence are all characteristics of a lukewarm heart. Third kind of heart is a heart on fire in a blaze for Jesus. For the on-fire heart, cold or lukewarm is not an option. Only hot will do. Like David, these on-fire people are a deer that pants for the water brooks. They long and yearn to be in the courts of the Lord. For one day there is better than a thousand elsewhere. You know, I've been invited to a, a lot of conferences, and a lot of times you go to these big churches, and it's a wonderful production, but I've never understood this idea that the speaker never goes out onto the platform until it's their time. It's like they're such a special guest, everything is just served to them perfectly, but they don't have to be part of the people, they don't have to be part of the worship. 
I always want to be part of the worship. I love coming to church even when the worship team is practicing because I get to begin to be in the courts of the Lord, to experience his presence, to experience the rising tide. That's why we encourage you as members to get up for church not one minute before the stream, but a few more minutes in order to get your hearts ready to place yourself in the courts of the Lord, to long after God, to settle your hearts and to begin to hear from him. If we spend six and a half days of the week focusing on all our activities, I think it's a very small ask to say, okay, we need to settle our hearts and get prepared before the king of kings. King David loved to be in the courts of the Lord. Psalm 27, he says, there's one thing that I desire, and that's to dwell in the house of the Lord and to behold his beauty. There's so much ugliness in the world. I think we need a little bit of beauty to recast our vision, to recalibrate our perspective. And when we sit before God, like Mary was at Jesus' feet, we get to look into the face of God. We get to see the beauty of the Lord. And that begins to cleanse us and remove the contamination and just the, you know, the stuff that comes on us that needs to be cleansed. And this is what God is after in these last days, hearts completely surrendered to him. This is not the day or the hour or the season to shrink back. This is not the time to fall away or cool off or to take a wait-and-see attitude. Young people, in particular, love to keep their options open. Well, we'll see. Don't want to commit to this. Don't want to commit to that. want to just keep my options open. A Davidic army is an army of people who, like David, have a heart after him and will do all his will. This is the time to go all in. A lot of us may say, man, I wish I weren't born in this time of the pandemic. I wish I didn't have to go through this scourge that's touching every nation of the earth. I don't want to think about the fact that there could be coronavirus 2 or coronavirus 3, or after I get my vaccine within one year, it's not going to work anymore. I can't take any more of just the, the weight and the weariness and the heaviness of our economy and on and on. But you know what? You were born exactly for this time. You are here to represent Jesus Christ. You are here to represent hope. You are here to be that Davidic people that's still on fire for God and not falling away. It's a test to our hearts to see what we're made of. What's the metal inside of us? God wants all of our hearts. And from our passage here in 1 Samuel 16, I want us to see five things that happen when our hearts are fully surrendered to God. Number one, when he has all your heart, you might be hidden from man, but not from God. We live in the age of social media, where everyone wants to be seen and known and idolized. We vest our identity in the number of followers that we have, how many likes that we get, how many times people have tagged us, how many retweets and mentions fill our feeds. It's a frenzy for fame out there. You know, just 10 years ago, Facebook was the latest, greatest thing, and everyone was rushing to get onto that platform. But soon it changed, and then everyone began moving towards Twitter, and then it became Instagram, and now it's TikTok. We can't get enough. We all want to be influencers. We want man to see us. But while the world is working furiously on their perfectly curated curated feeds of how they look, dress, eat, and live, it might make you feel a little less. Or worse yet, you let them define you as being insignificant. 
Dear ones, don't fall for it. It's one big head fake. God does not look on the outward. He looks at the heart. Was this not the word to the prophet? Was this not God's standard of selection? In verse 7 there, Samuel was saying, the Lord was saying to Samuel, now remember, Samuel was the prophet of the land. He had the eye of the Lord. 100% of his words came to pass, and yet God had to say to him, don't be controlled by what you see. Don't just look to the outward. Don't say, oh, this must be the one because he looks so handsome and he's so tall. Because God does not see as man does. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. David was completely hidden from man. He wasn't even invited to his own ordination, his own coronation. He was out in the fields doing his responsibility, tending to his father's sheep. He was passed over seven times. Talk about a setup for rejection. And while man may overlook us, this is not how God sees. He sees completely differently. He's looking at our heart. Think about this. What if our social media feed was a continuous stream of what was actually in our hearts? How good would we look then? What matters to God is not the outward, but the inward. Not the appearance, but the inside. And God wants your heart, and you can entrust all of your heart to him. If there's one person you can be completely vulnerable with, honest, and at home with, it's God. Man will betray you. They'll disappoint you. They'll gossip about you. They'll backstab you. They'll tell your secrets, but not God. He loves you perfectly, and thus you can give him your heart wholly. A second thing here is that when God has all of your heart, you are beautiful in his eyes. Verse 11 and 12 of chapter 16, Scripture says that when David was brought before the prophet, the Scripture describes David as ruddy with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. You know, like a, a parent that's holding a brand new baby, that baby is the most beautiful thing ever. And they will forever be beautiful in the eyes of the parents. You love them, and the baby loves you back. And I love this description of David and how he was ruddy, just this picture of pink, rosy cheeks and beautiful eyes. He had a, a bright countenance, and his eyes were just lit up. There wasn't confusion there. There wasn't devastation there. There was health. There was vitality. And it says that he was handsome. In the Hebrew there, it literally means good to look at, mesmerizing. When your heart is given to God, you are mesmerizing to God. He loves looking in your face. He loves to look in your eyes. Mimi and I just finished Christmas with our adult children. And they are as adorable and precious and beautiful as the day that I held them in my arms. And that's not just a biased statement. It's literally true. And it's literally true about how God sees you and sees me. When your heart is fully God's, nothing is more beautifying to you than that. Another thing that we see from this passage is that when God has all of your heart, he will use prophetic events to guide you. As we learned in our last preaching series from Ephesians, chapter 1, verse 4, 
He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. You are not an accident. He planned you. He has a purpose for you. He has a reason for you. There's a reason why you are here on planet Earth, and it's not just to consume oxygen and food. You are to bring glory to God and delight to him, and most of all, for you to enjoy God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20 says that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. God did not create us to drift. God did not create us to be confused, to wonder, why are we here? No, he created us for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God will go out of his way to make his purpose known to you, and that's what he did with David. Even when no one else saw the potential, even when no one else saw the call on David's life, God made sure that he would know. He will send the Samuels to you personally and circumstantially. He will move prophetically and miraculously in your life. But remember, if your heart is not fully his, he will not reveal the fullness of his will. Otherwise, it will be just be throwing pearls before swine. If you don't really want to go all the way with God, why would he tell you? He would just be wasting his words. I was on a Zoom call with some of the guys in the church, and I was sharing with them this testimony that when I made the decision to leave my science career, I was at 3M at the time, doing pharmaceutical research, and I'm very dialed into all this vaccine information because that's what we were doing at 3M, coming up with therapeutics. And so I had made the decision to leave science and to go into the ministry, and I was having a, a final exit interview with my boss. And so he was saying to me, Rich, you've done a, a great job for us, and I want you to know that you will always have a job if you ever want to come back. But then he said this, but you won't. And I couldn't believe what he said because he was prophesying to me. It was such a pure and declarative thing that he was saying, and it was like a church bell ringing in my spirit. My destiny was not in science, it was in the ministry. And God was using my boss, who was not even a Christian, to speak directly to me. God will orchestrate prophetic moments to confirm your step, to show you this is the way you should go, and to give you that firm foundation and that faith to know, yes, this is the way in which I should walk. Another time, a few years back, I was ministering in a church. A, a lady came up to me. And she said, Pastor Rich, I've, I've really been praying for you and asking you know, that God would really bless the team. And while I was praying for you guys, the Lord gave me a dream in the night. And it was a picture of skyscrapers on your back. And the skyscrapers were tall and heavy, but God wasn't going to let it crush you. You'd have the grace to carry them. Now, I was stunned when she gave me this picture because it was just in that season that we were looking to expand our church planting efforts to other global cities around the world. What a confirmation. How supernatural it was that God came and said, yes, this is what I have in store for you. God will call you out of the field and tell you what you're supposed to do because your, li your life matters that much to him. Number four, when God has all your heart, you will do exploits for him. We're going to talk more about this next Sunday when we look at David's battle with Goliath. <clears throat> but Daniel chapter 11, verse 32, and it's so well translated in the King James Version, 
says, those who know their God will be strong and do exploits. Those who know their God will be strong and do exploits. God delights to take the hidden and the small and the discounted and the weak, the unnoticed, and make them shine for Him. God loves to show off His grace and power and glory through unsuspecting ones, through those who know their God and are totally in love with Him. We talk about food shortages. We talk about famine. We talk about drought. We talk about all these different things that we're in short supply of. But the Scripture pinpoints here one of the great shortages is those who know God and will do exploits. There is an invitation for us to go with God more deeply, to know Him better, to have our hearts more filled with Him. And there is a dynamic result that comes out of that as is prophesied to us from Daniel chapter 11. And as we will see in the life of David, that we do things that are so far beyond our skill set, that are so far beyond what people expect because God is on our side. And we get to do exploits for him and everyone will say, this has to be God because that person could not have done it out of their own strength. So even when we talk about potentially the opportunity with this building, How could a little congregation of 200 people develop three quarters of a block? This is unheard of. What will God do? We're not sure, but we're going to seek him. We want to do exploits for God. And so this point just comes to us very clearly as we see through the life of David that when our heart is given to him, God will use us in just marvelous ways. And then we see here, number five, When God has all your heart, his favor will be upon you. As we read in verse 12 and 13, as Samuel brought David, the Lord confirmed that this was his choice. The Lord said, Arise, anoint him, for this is he. Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the Spirit of the Lord came mightily upon David from that day forward. God loves to pour out his favor and his spirit and his anointing upon you and me. He loves to do it. Remember that beautiful word in Ephesians chapter 1 where it says that God lavishes, lavishes his blessing upon us. You draw on the heartstrings of God and he just wants to pour out. He is such a generous God and he's going to give you the best. Not a slight portion of his spirit, but all of his spirit and all of his glory. This is what Pentecost is all about. The horn of oil being poured out on us corporately. Not just the elite priests that were in the Old Testament. Now everyone gets in on the game. Everyone gets in on the good stuff. God's glory and spirit moving through a passionate church. It's fire on fire. There's nothing like the favor of God upon our lives. Think of the Israelites in the desert going through the Red Sea. Water from the rock, manna from the sky, sandals that don't wear out. I was reading this in in Deuteronomy thinking, man, the same pair of shoes for 40 years. I'm not sure we would like that or the women would like that, but just it never wore out. Being financed by the Egyptians as they left, literally bank accounts being emptied for them. There was no markets in the desert. Why would they need money? And yet God filled their pockets with wealth defeating enemies bigger and stronger than them. 
before they crossed the Jordan River to go into the Promised Land. They defeated Cheyenne and Bashan in Numbers 21. And then, of course, coming into the land filled with milk and honey. The favor of God. We see time and time again how God was favoring David and how David loved him back. And this same God that loved David loves you. In some respect, every one of our lives is a story of God's favor and blessing on our lives. We heard last Sunday the testimonies of how God has been working and watching and healing. It's terrific stuff. Is there any reason to keep your heart back from God? What's keeping you back from Him? One of the things I want to challenge you with is to identify those things, those hindrances, to name it, and then face it and defeat it like David defeated Goliath. Don't let any giant stand in the way of your pursuit of God. For instance, one of the things that I see is because there's a flood of sin that's come into the world, men in particular get taken down by visual things, by pornography and all these different things, that what happens is they get on such, under such a load of sin, they feel they cannot go to God, that they're not good enough, that they repeatedly fail. But you know what? Your sin cannot defeat the blood of Jesus Christ. It cannot defeat the cross. You can never allow the cross to be defeated by your own habits because the cross is stronger and the cross is better. And no matter how many times you sin, you have to go back to the cross and say, Jesus is my victor and he cleanses me from all sin. You have now defeated unbelief and guilt and shame and allowed the goodness and the graciousness and the mercy of God to touch you over and over again. You have defeated a Goliath in your life because the cross stands tall. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it's you know, a deep love for money. Maybe it's a fear that God is going to call you to do something that, quote, you don't want to do. You can trace all these things back and say, okay, there's a reason why I've allowed these things to dominate me as opposed to the love of God. Don't be cold or lukewarm in your faith. Give God all of your heart. I want to end with this thought here. <clears throat> there was a reason why David gave all of himself to the Lord. And the clue is in the text. And it's related to his youthfulness and his age. In verse 11, the prophet asked, are these all the children? Now think about this. God is wanting to anoint a new king. At this point, King Saul is probably 50 years old. And if you're going to look for a successor, you're going to look for someone that's 30, 40, 50 years old. In Canada, United States, you have to be a certain minimum age, 45 years old, 40 years old, in order to serve at the highest office in the land. And so here God is sending Samuel, and he's asking, are these all the children? Now what's going on? A child? And Jesse... The father said, there remains yet the youngest. So of the seven brothers, we're talking about the youngest of the children. And that was David. God was looking for a child, not a warrior, not a leader, not a university graduate. And Matthew 18.3 says, I say to you, Jesus, I'm quoting Jesus, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom 
of heaven. Now, why is this detail so crucial? When you are childlike, you easily see and accept God's heart for you. You don't question it. You don't have an adult filter. You don't discard it because of your life experiences. Instead, as a child, you just receive God's heart for you, and you live in that. And you revel in its freedom. And so when you see God's heart for you as a child, you naturally give your heart back to him. That's just the natural response of the heart. Someone loves you, you love them back. It's completely unfettered and free. Now Jesus gives us this crucial word in Matthew 18. It says, you must be converted. And in the Greek, that word is the sense of making a U-turn. In other words, going back to something that you previously possessed. You need to do a 180. Every single one of us has been a child. And this is where and how God reveals his glory to you and me. If you retrace your steps to that place, as Jesus said, and become converted like a child, going all in is as easy as enjoying an ice cream cone. And you never lose your love of it. David was childlike. Adam was childlike. Now, this is so interesting because Adam was not a baby. God created him a full man. He's the only person that came out as a full man, everyone else. But God put within him a childlike heart and a childlike spirit. That's man's original blueprint. That we're not to be childish, but we're to be childlike. Jesus was childlike. And this was their gateway to the kingdom in God's heart. And you too can have that. I've walked with God now for over 44 years. And more and more I'm realizing how my adult ways get in the way. And instead my relationship with God becomes turbocharged as I rest in being his child. Wholeheartedness and joy is the natural and devastating outcome of being converted into a child again. And this was the key to David's abandonment. He never lost his childlike sense of faith. And that secret can be yours today. This is how we can have confidence to give all of our insights to him. So Lord, we, we thank you for just this opening frame of David's life and how amazing it was that you went and chose the youngest of seven sons. You deliberately chose a childlike teen to be the next king because there was a foundation inside of David that would be a blessing to all of Israel. David was all in because his heart was all yours. And God, you want to declutter our hearts. You want to rummage through all the things that have been packed into our hearts that are taking away and weakening us. God, that we can be strong for you in this hour. I thank you for all the members of Five Stones Church. I thank you for each one that loves you so much and so faithful and is already wholehearted and I pray, God, that that spirit would just infect and touch many others that they come in contact with. Lord, we want to be a church. We want to be a congregation that's all out for you. And for those of us that are feeling that tug of the Holy Spirit, that we need to come into another place of surrender, I pray, God, that in the coming weeks and months that you would speak clearly to us so that we can throw everything overboard 
that is just extra weight and baggage. Free us, Father God. Help us to be like David. Help us to be just joyful and free. And we know, God, that your favor will be upon us strongly as we give ourselves to you. So we thank you now in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for joining us online this Sunday. And uh, we look forward to seeing you next week when we'll continue on with our series from 1 Samuel 16.